the 9th marked the one-year anniversary of our moving to Charlotte. Uh, it's been a crazy year. Uh, last April, when Jennifer and I moved, we transplanted a rose bush from Winston-Salem from our yard to our new home here in Charlotte. I first learned about this particular rose while driving around one day, hopelessly lost and late for an appointment. I was listening passively to public radio about the rediscovery of a rose that had been thought to be extinct. I was shocked when the interviewee commented that she had found the rose on a grave in Richmond, Virginia of one of my ancestors whose name I shared. <laughs> I tracked her down and was able to acquire a plant propagated from the one that she found uh, and, uh, and planted it in the yard. The name of the rose is Rosa Moscata. History records that this particular rose has been cultivated as far back as the 16th century. And it was the favorite rose of poets, including Byron and Keats, and Shakespeare. William Shakespeare pays homage to the rose in my backyard and the tragedy Romeo and Juliet. You know the story. The Montagues and the Capulets are two families in fair Verona with an ancient grudge with hidden roots that blossoms into tragedy. Romeo Montague and Juliet Capulet are star-crossed lovers, but their relationship is forbidden. Only their death can end the rage between their parents and reconcile their families. In Act 2, Scene 2, Juliet, Juliet appears in a window above and calls out, O oh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? Deny thy father's name, deny thy father and refuse thy name. Or if thou wilt not, be but sworn my love and I'll no longer be a Capulet. Romeo, observing from below, thinks to himself, Shall I hear more, or shall I speak at this? Juliet goes on, Tis but thy name that is my enemy. Thou art thyself, though not a Montague. What is Montague? Is it it's nor hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, nor any other part belonging to a man? Oh, be some other name. What's in a name? That which we call a rose, by any other name, would smell as sweet. So Romeo would, hear he not, Romeo called, retain that dear perfection which he owes without that title. Romeo, doff thy name for that name which is no part of thee, and take all myself. Romeo finally responds, I take thee at thy word, call me but love and I'll be newly baptized. Henceforth, I will never, never will I be Romeo. What's in a name? Essentially, names just distinguish one thing from another. Little test the imagination of prospective parents more than the naming of a child. Names are important. Our tradition in our family has been to use family names. My mother once told me, our names uh, are given to us as a name to be called and a name to live up to. Our names came infused with a burden of expectations, family loyalty, achievement.
and prosperity, virtue. Judge for yourself how I'm doing. <laughs> Juliet ponders the question, what's in a name, as if names are somehow superfluous to what really matters. Romeo's substance and character are what count. What's in a name? It's not the nature, the heart, or substance of a person. That's what really matters, right? 425 years after Shakespeare wrote it, what's in a name, is a relevant question today. You may have noticed that today in America there is much ado about names. Changing names is a worthy and important topic, and I don't want to diminish that in any way. It's important in civil discourse and political debate and something of an obsession in our culture. Juliet wishfully insists, and I paraphrase, you give up your name and I'll give up mine and we'll live happily ever after. And Romeo responds, call me love and I'll be born again. All sin and separation washed away. As if changing names will solve the underlying problem. Names are a matter of division. They separate one country, one tribe, one race, one community, one family, and one child from another. As communities scramble to rebrand ancient grudges under new names, Juliet's metaphor uncovers a problem of sweet-smelling roses, a rather naive statement on her part. There is more to roses than a sweet fragrance. If you come to my yard, you might find that a rose by any other name would smell as sweet, but you'll also find the most wicked plant in my yard. More impressive, really, for its thorns than for the small white flowers that die and fall to the ground almost as soon as they blossomed. Try to pick one, and this sweet-smelling rose is sure to draw blood. I think this is a point that Shakespeare is trying to make as well, as Romeo runs off having made a pledge to be love, and then becomes inflamed with vengeance and murder in Act 3 of Romeo and Juliet, and the tragedy begins. People are passionately divided by names. But the division is not really a matter of names. The issue is one of ancient grudges, wounds rooted deep and cultivated for generations. What's in a name? How, as Christians, should we enter into the world and into the conversation? What name possibly has the power to break the ancient grudge? What name can reconcile what is broken? What name can bind together rather than divide and tear apart? What name can heal the deep wounds and assuage the fear and lead to life and not death? In all of this morning's lessons, there's one common thread that ties them all together. His name. His name. In Psalm 111, we have a celebration of that name, God's name. 
in response to the question, what's in a name, Psalm 111 verse 9 says, Holy and awesome is His name. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses asked God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, What is His name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is the most important name for God in the Old Testament. In Hebrew, the word is Yahweh. His name is firm and speaks of the unchangeability of his nature. Yesterday I am. Today I am. Tomorrow I am. He is not here or there, past or present, absent or, or uh, present or absent. Yahweh is here now, and He's present. God confronts us with His name and demands our attention. He exists and cannot be ignored. Like most psalms, Psalm 111 ascribes to Yahweh the honor due His name. What's in a name? In Psalm 111, we find that in His name are certain attributes or characteristics that are implied by His name. If you look back, you can see words like splendor, majesty, holiness, permanence, eternity, grace and mercy in verse 4, provision, faithfulness, power, justice, trustworthiness in verses 5 to 7, and forgiveness in verse 9. <clears throat> God's name does not only possess the splendor of creation, His name is not just full of grace and mercy. His name is not only our provider, His name is not just commandments and judgment. His name is not just forgiveness. His name is all of these, all together, all the time, always present. His name is indivisible. There is not one God of the Old Testament and another God of the New Testament and another God of these people and another God of those people. There's one God. He's under no obligation, but he possesses and dispenses all things according to his own purposes, according to his own name. His name is so full of holiness and awesomeness that it should make our knees shake. It's certainly not something to be tossed about as a trifle or used as a cast-off phrase. As it says at the end of Psalm 111, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All of those who practice it have a good understanding. Do we practice it? When we consider what is an, what's in a name, or what is his name, we can only understand the enormity of his power when we can also appreciate the magnitude of the danger in his name. In C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Susan Pevensey, who has entered into the land of Narnia through a magic wardrobe, is having a conversation with a beaver. Mr. Beaver tells Susan, Aslan is a lion. The lion, the lion, the great lion, 
Ooh, says said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He's good, but he's not safe. Even as believers, when we hear his name, we should be overwhelmed with a terrifying sense of his presence and his power. Power that is either for us or power that's against us. In the Gospels, the most important name of God is another name. In John chapter 8, Jesus is doing battle with the Jewish religious leaders. In verse 54, he says, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he said it and was glad. Then Jesus said to him, You are not fifty years then the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham I am. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus uses a particular phrase over and over. I am. There's seven statements in John that Jesus uses that allude to Exodus chapter 3 in a way that should, would surely shock and offend his Jewish hearers. Instead, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the Jewish people regarded the name of Yahweh with such reverence that even though it occurs in the Bible almost 7,000 times, if they were to be reading it, they wouldn't use the word Yahweh, but instead would use Adonai, which means my Lord. What's in a name? What's in his name? What's in the name Jesus? In John's Gospel, it is as if all of the attributes of the character and nature of God ascribed to the name Yahweh in Psalm 111 are put on Jesus. Splendor, majesty, holiness, permanence, eternity, grace, mercy, provision, faithfulness, power, justice, trustworthiness, and forgiveness. All together, all at once, all the time. In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the power of his word. God the Father and God the Son are not like a mom and dad that you can go to one for money and escape punishment with the other. The names Yahweh and Jesus are like two coins stamped out by the same die possessing the same value of infinitely greater worth than the names of angels or Moses or Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or any other earthly name. 
In John chapter 20, verses 19 to 31, we find Jesus' first appearance to the disciples after the resurrection. Jesus appeared in the upper room behind a door that was locked. The door was locked because they were afraid they might also be taken prisoner and crucified. And all of a sudden, Jesus was standing there among them. We know from Luke's gospel in chapter 24 that they were petrified. That's why Jesus said, peace be with you. They thought that Jesus was a ghost. He had to convince them otherwise, so he showed them his wounds and he ate a meal with them. After they saw that it was him, they were glad, but they were still doubtful and unsure, we learn in Luke. He said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. I wonder what would be more frightening, seeing a ghost or seeing Jesus actually physically risen from the dead. Especially since the last time that they saw him, he was being drug away and they were running in the other direction, abandoning him, betraying him, and denying him. They were frightened and bewildered and doubting. What do they expect? Is his power for them or against them? Then Jesus breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And in Luke it says that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Then in John chapter 20 verse 23, Jesus spoke to them of forgiveness and reconciliation. Poor Thomas. He missed the whole show. He gets such a bad rap all the time. Um, but it's very important what happens when eight days later, Jesus repeats the performance for Thomas alone. In so doing, the gospel redirects our focus back to this one essential thing. His name. What's in a name? Just ask Thomas. Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul writes, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul is saying that God exalted Jesus and took his own name, Yahweh, and bestowed it on Jesus. All of the same attributes, all of the same character, all of the same substance of his nature, all honor and glory do his name, also belong to the name Jesus. Fully present all the time. Thomas's epiphany brings it all together with absolute clarity. Jesus, my Lord, my God. Well, so what? What does it matter that the name of God in the Old Testament and the name of Jesus are the same 
in character and substance. John goes on to answer this in verses 30 and 31 by returning to the question, what's in a name? It says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing you may have life in his name. What's in a name? What's in a name? Life. Life. Where the Gospels give account of Jesus' earthly ministry, the book of Acts is a history of the work of Jesus after the resurrection through the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, Peter preaches his first sermon after the ascension. How they had crucified the Son of God. Those who heard were cut to the heart and asked, What shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Those who repent are washed, covered, head to toe in the name, not just on the inside, but also on the outside, but also on the inside by the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are going up to the temple to pray when they see a man, lame since birth, being carried to his usual spot by the gate where he would beg from people as they entered Jerusalem. He fixed his eyes on them, expecting a handout. Instead, Peter said, I have no gold, silver or gold, but what I have I give to you. And he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And they took him by the hand and stood him up, and he began leaping and walking and praising God. Interesting. He wasn't praising Peter. He wasn't praising anybody else. He wasn't even praising Jesus in whose name he had been healed. He was praising God because God was the one doing the work through Peter, through the name of Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's power. Are you following the names? Peter's commanding him to stand up in the name of Jesus, but when he gets up, he praises God. Going on in, in our passage this morning, Peter again preaches very much the same message as in chapter 1. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. What's in a name? Peter's a big name dropper, isn't he? I mean, he bombs them with the names that mean the most to him. And he points at how those who mean the most to them, Jesus meant the most to. But they turned him over to Pilate. Peter starts dropping more names, names for Jesus. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murder to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, 
By faith in his name has this man who was once lame, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus Christ has given the man his perfect health in the presence of you all. You denied God. You denied the Holy and Righteous One, and you asked for a murder. You killed God, the author of life, whom God brought back to you. Brought, brought, whom God brought back to life. We are his witnesses. The name of Jesus has made this man strong. The name of Jesus has brought this man to perfect health. It's Jesus who brought faith through which this man could be saved. Peter then tells, Jesus, tells them, Jesus has fulfilled scripture. Repent, therefore, turn back, that your sins may be blotted away, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Here again, Peter is speaking of refreshing, the new life that will come through the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Lord here and now, complete always the presence of Jesus. What is in a name? Everything. Everything that matters to us. Everything. Names are important and not easily discarded. How do we engage in a world that is so inflamed and impassioned and obsessed with names? How do we get beyond the transplanting of roses with all their sweet-smelling flowers and thorns that cover up ancient grudges with deep roots? How do we avoid what seems an undercurrent of tragedy? Do you sense that in the climate of today? How do we engage in that? Well, I say that we engage in it impassioned and obsessed with names, and inflamed with one name, the name of Jesus. It makes all the difference. It makes all the difference in the way in which we engage with the world. In Acts 3, verse 22, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers, and you shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. God gives us his name. And it's a name that we have to contend with. There is no Switzerland when it comes to God's name. The power of God is either behind you or it's in front of you. Friends, today's Belonging Sunday. We're welcoming new families into the family of King of Kings. And it's a declaration of our engagement with the world that is in desperate need of the name that we celebrate this morning. It's the name that'll end the grudge. We're a family because of his name. We're a family through his name and we have life in his name. You belong because you've turned from all other names You've put his name above every name. 
It's the name in which you've been forgiven and the name in which you've been reborn. It's the name of the resurrection hope that we have. Today is not simply a matter of church growth in the normal life of the church. Today we lift up the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the sake of those who do not yet belong. Where other names divide, His name binds together. Regardless of the fragrance or regardless of thorns, regardless of grudges, His name breaks through and breaks the curse. What's in a name? 